All right, well, I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Psalms and the 110th Psalm. Over the last couple of weeks, we studied Psalm 109. Psalm 109 is a psalm that pronounces curses upon David's enemies who've rejected God's law and who have rebelled against his authority. David very plainly stated in that psalm that he gave himself completely to prayer for his enemies. And at the end of the day, he left them completely in God's hands. The Bible teaches very in no uncertain terms, that we have no right to avenge ourselves. And the reason that we are not to avenge ourselves, not to seek vengeance, according to Scripture, is that vengeance belongs to God. This fact that's taught in Scripture presents us with a challenge. Throughout history, many men and women have struggled to believe that God will indeed judge wrongs and deal with those who have oppressed and persecuted them. In fact, many times, it seems as though God has forgotten that vengeance and justice are His responsibility. And because of that, many people feel they must take matters into their own hands. We, as human beings, often rationalize this. We say something like this, if God's not doing anything about it, someone needs to. And therefore, I should do it. I will admit that God has created institutions that ought to take care of injustice. They ought to ensure the rights of all people. These institutions include the family and civil government, both of which are created by God, defined by Him, ordained by Him, and they are given purpose by Him. But it is also true that these God-ordained institutions often fail. Fail to fulfill their purpose. They fail to protect those who are vulnerable. They fail to deal with oppressors and injustice. It's true. These institutions, the family and civil government, are populated by sinful, rebellious people. People who do not act as they should. And because of that, justice can be thwarted. hate to break it to you this morning. People get away with stuff in this world. Don't believe me? Just look at the history of the city of Chicago. Right, Vito? He knows all about that growing up there. People get away with things. People who have the right connections... Because there's corrupt people, because there's corruption in the system. And because of that, many today scoff at Christians when Christians offer prayer 
in response to national tragedies or tragedies that happen around the world. They don't see justice being done, and therefore, they conclude that when we pray as Christians, prayer is a form of giving up, of allowing the oppressors to win. If all we do is pray, then we're letting the bad people get away with whatever they're doing. We're letting the oppressors win. But that is not looking at the world through eyes of faith. And we as Christians ought to know better. Not because we have a different experience from the rest of the world. Let me say that at at the out front. We Christians throughout history have suffered often unjustly. And without experiencing any deliverance from the persecutors. In fact, if you want to look around the world today and you actually pay attention, you'll see that all over the world today there are Christians who are suffering unjust persecution. Not generally in the United States. But there's ample evidence for that around the world in other places. And so we realize that there are plenty of Christians who suffer and do not receive any relief. So in that sense, our experience as Christians is no different than the experience of the rest of the world that sees sinful people do vile things and get away with it. And so when I say that we as Christians ought to know better, I'm not saying we should know better because our experience is different. We should know better because we know the promise of God. That's where our knowledge comes from, not from our experience. We, we talk about this all the time, and this is a, not really a major point of my message, but we talk about this all the time in dealing with the charismatic movement. Our standard of judgment is not our experience. Our standard of truth, our standard of judgment is the Word of God. Period. End of story. The minute that we allow our experience to be the judge... We are in shaky ground, and we have run into some serious trouble, and it leads to a lot of insanity, as you you heard about yesterday if you were here. Laughing revivals, barking revivals, and vomiting revivals. Yeah. And those aren't even the most absurd, by the way. Those are just the -the run-of-the-mill Now, the truth is, the Bible teaches us that vengeance belongs to God. But the Bible also teaches us that the Lord will execute judgment and justice on the earth. You say, wait a second, Pastor. You said turn to Psalm 110, and it sounds an awful lot like you're going back to Psalm 109. Hold on. I think there's a reason that Psalm 110 follows Psalm 109. My contention all along through our study of the Psalms is that the Psalms are organized on purpose. There is a method here. There's an intentionality. So whoever put them together, and we don't know who that was, but whoever put them together in this structure did so on purpose because he's trying to communicate through the structure of the Psalter. There is a reason for this. So Psalm 110 follows 
Psalm 109. Why? Because we as Christians are called to believe the promises of God rather than believing what we see and what we experience for ourselves. Psalm 110 is one of the most significant passages in all the Bible. In fact, it's only seven verses long. It is quoted or alluded to more often than any other Old Testament passage by the New Testament writers. Psalm 110 is their favorite passage of the Old Testament Scriptures. And I mean everything. Genesis to Malachi, this chapter right here is the most quoted. One writer uh, counted 33 times where the New Testament writers either quote or allude to Psalm 110. These seven verses. So it is a favorite of the New Testament writers. It's actually also referred to or or alluded to numerous times by the Old Testament prophets as well. Specifically, Zechariah and Zechariah 6 uh, seems to uh, take the theme of Psalm 110 and, and expound upon it as well. So there are other scriptures in the Old Testament that use this. So this is a a very important text of scripture. What we are not going to do this morning is we are not going to read Psalm 110 and then jump somewhere else and find out what something else in scripture says about it. I'm going to let you do all of the cross-referencing you want on your own time. And you can track down those 33 references and allusions in the New Testament if you want. And you can see how Peter uses it uh, on the day of Pentecost. And you can see how Paul uses it in his writing. And you can see how John uses it. And you can see how the writer of Hebrews uses it. You can see all the New Testament writers use it. That's fine. That's not what we're doing today. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at Psalm 110. Today, actually, this week and next week. And we're going to look at Psalm 110 and we're going to examine this psalm. What is David trying to say? That's what our focus and our goal is here. So let's pray and let's look at uh, this psalm together. And we want to understand what is David trying to communicate in this very significant psalm that contains very important promises to us relating to the judgment of God on the unrighteous. And we'll see that as we go here. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you again for your word and As we come to Psalm 110, we are reminded that uh, uh, you have inspired, you have breathed out this word. And so we recognize that David was the man who penned these words. He was an instrument in your hand so that these uh, these verses, these very short seven verses would be a, a testimony of your wisdom it would be a revelation from you. It would be uh, the truth that comes down from heaven. Help us to receive it that way today. To recognize this is not David's word. It's certainly not my word, but this is your word that comes from your mouth. And therefore, we are bound to it, to listen to it, to pay attention to it, to obey, to trust in it. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do that today that you would help me as I speak to be your instrument to proclaim the truth of what David is saying here in this psalm, what the Holy Spirit is communicating, that we might uh, understand it rightly. Lord, I pray that you do a work in our hearts, that you would take your word and you would apply it to our hearts in a very powerful way today. In Jesus' name, amen. Look with me at Psalm 110. A psalm of David. 
The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. In order for us to understand this psalm, we have to begin with the title. A psalm of David. Over the past four years now, we've been going through these psalms, the first 109 And I said, as we've gone through them over many times, I've said that I believe these headings are original, part of the inspired scriptures. There are a lot of people, however, who doubt them, who dismiss these headings as being later editions and and particularly being unreliable. When they come to Psalm 110, most of, I I don't know if most is the right word, but many of the commentators that that I surveyed this week Many of them don't even consider the possibility that David is the author. They simply conclude or or assume from the beginning that this is written by someone else. They they often suggest it was written by a prophet. Maybe Nathan or Gad, one of the prophets who who served there in in David's close company. Or they might suggest it was written by some other person in David's royal court there in Jerusalem. And they suggest that it was written about David and to David as king. Now, there are several reasons for us to reject that view or those views. And and reject any view that suggests the author is someone other than David here. There's reason for us to reject the idea that this psalm is talking about David. But let me just give you what I think is the most important reason. There's many of them. I'm going to give you one, the most important one, and it's this. That in the New Testament, Jesus credited David as writing this psalm. Right? So this should be our slam dunk, our home run. Jesus said, Mark chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus said, David himself in the Holy Scripture declared, the Lord said to my Lord. I'm sorry, in the Holy Spirit. I misread that. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, and then he goes on here for this verse. When Jesus quoted from Psalm 110, he said, David said it in the Holy Spirit. So notice he's touching both, right? (coughs) David said it, but it wasn't just David the man. It was David inspired by the Holy Spirit. David who was led by the Holy Spirit. David who was carried along by the Holy Spirit who said these words. So Jesus tells us, that this is written by David. That should be enough for us. I think it's probably enough for you, for me. A lot of people dismiss that, however. But I would just say this, there's plenty of internal evidence in the psalm that this is David talking about someone other than himself rather than someone else writing about David. And I I think we might see that as we go through here, but I didn't really feel like we needed to build a case. Jesus makes it pretty clear, doesn't he? David said this by the Holy Spirit. And then he quotes him. Now, 
David is the author, and that is really important. In fact, if you if you pull that little that little uh, that little fact out, that little facet or, or that little stone out of the foundation, the whole thing, in my opinion, crumbles. The interpretations that I've read of this psalm this week are all over the map. The minute that David is removed from the picture, so we got to start there. David is the author, and David is the author, and he is writing about others other than himself. Of course, he writes about the Lord, Yahweh. Verse 1, the Lord. That You notice Lord is all capitals. That tells us it is the holy name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh said. So he's writing here and he's, he's going to quote something that he heard directly from God. Now this is not quoted from anywhere else in Scripture. So this is something that God spoke in David's hearing. Somehow God revealed this to David. David is a prophet. By the way, the New Testament calls David a prophet. So that's not surprising either. David is a prophet. He is speaking something that God has revealed to him. Yahweh said, but notice he's also referring to someone else. Yahweh said to my Lord. So David is writing about someone that he calls my Lord. One writer pointed this out. That in the Psalms, whenever David speaks of my something, he is either referring to his enemies or to God himself. Now, David's not referring to his enemies here. So that would leave us with the conclusion or lead us to the assumption that my Lord is a reference to David's God. That's what makes this psalm especially interesting. Because notice, as we already said, this is a pronouncement from Yahweh. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord. How could David's God, Yahweh, be speaking to himself? Now, I know you're going to jump to the answer because you know the answer theologically. But that's why this is so important. We need to puzzle this a little bit. We need to get the weight of what David is doing here. David is revealing truth about God to his original audience, those Israelites who lived 3,000 years ago. And David is communicating to them about the Lord, Yahweh, but also this person whom he calls my Lord. Now, it's worth noting that the word Lord that David uses at the end of that sentence, or the end of that line, is the word, the Hebrew word Adonai, which is a title And Adonai is often used of God in the Old Testament. But it is not exclusively used of God. This word Lord, David calls him my Lord here. Sometimes that word is applied to God, but not always. For instance, in Genesis chapter 18, Sarah. You remember Sarah, Abraham's wife? Sarah speaks of Abraham and she calls Abraham her Adonai, her Lord. Sometimes we like to joke about this, although the New Testament actually picks up on this and makes a point out of that. But sometimes we like to joke about this. Ladies, wives, you call your husband Lord. Sarah called Abraham Lord, Adonai, Master. 
Genesis 23, the sons of Heth, Abraham is negotiating with them over buying a a piece of property. And they call Abraham their Adonai and say that he is a mighty prince among them. A few chapters later in Genesis 31, Rachel calls her father Laban Adonai. And then even a few chapters later in the book of Genesis, Joseph calls Potiphar, his slave master, Adonai. By the way, these are all just in Genesis. That's just looking at Genesis and I found, and that wasn't all of them, I only just picked a few, but I found even there, multiple different uses of this term. This term is used in a lot of different ways. It doesn't always refer to God. And so the point here that I'm trying to make is that this this title, Adonai, Lord, doesn't always refer to God, but it does always speak of a relationship in which one person is exalted above the other person in some way. And so whenever you have Sarah calling Abraham Lord, she is acknowledging that as her husband, Abraham is her head. You have uh, the sons of Heth, and they are acknowledging Abraham as a mighty prince, and so they call him Lord. Rachel calling her father Lord. Again, Joseph calling his slave master Lord. These are all terms that recognize that the other person is in some way a position of authority. And so we have to ask ourselves a very simple question, but it's important. Who would David have called Lord? Adonai. What person would David have used that term for? Now, he wouldn't have spoken this of himself. It wouldn't make any sense. He wouldn't have called his son Solomon Adonai. Even though Solomon, remember, succeeded David on the throne. He was the first part of the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to David. But he wouldn't have called his son Adonai. That wasn't appropriate. Fathers didn't call their sons. In fact, it's probably more likely Solomon would have called David Adonai because he was his father. That would have been an appropriate term of respect. And so David wouldn't have called his son Solomon. He certainly wouldn't have spoken of any of the other kings of Israel that were to descend from him that we read about in the scriptures. Some of them were great men, but David wouldn't have called any of them Lord. They were all his descendants. You don't, you don't speak that way of your descendants. They honor you. You don't honor them. That's how that works. David wouldn't have used that term in that way. And so we realize that we're kind of running out of options here. Who would David have spoken of and called Adonai, Lord? Well, then we remember I've already alluded to this, David, or that God made a covenant with David. You can read it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Psalm 89 talks about it extensively. In that covenant that, that, that God made with David, he promised David that there would come a specific descendant. One who would sit on David's throne and who would establish his kingdom forever. The man who would come from David's line, who would be descended from David and yet would exceed David because he would take David's throne and elevate it so that it would extend worldwide and forever. He's mentioned in Psalm 2. He's called Messiah. The word simply means anointed one. 
He's specifically identified that way in Psalm 2. And I submit to you that he is the one whom David would call my Lord. David, looking ahead at the promise that God had made, looking ahead in time and seeing that there was coming a descendant who would be greater than David. One worthy for David himself to humble himself and call him Lord. And David speaks of this one here. Messiah. My Lord, David says. What that tells us is that there's three people who are in view in this psalm. There's David, the author. There is Yahweh, the great covenant-keeping God of Israel. And there is Messiah, the anointed one. The one to whom David bows the knee. And David records for us a conversation, if you will. It's actually one-sided conversation. He's recording for us some things that Yahweh, the Lord in heaven, spoke to Messiah. This coming future son of David who would be so great and exalted, who would fulfill those promises. And what does the Lord in heaven, Yahweh, say to Messiah? Well, notice what he says there in verse 1, the very first, the very first line of what he says. Sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. This is a statement of exaltation. Messiah is exalted. Think about it. For God Almighty, who sits in heaven, to speak to a man and say, Come here and sit down at my right hand. In the place of honor beside my throne. Does the Lord ever say this to David? No. David is never invited to go and sit at God's right hand. Does he ever say this to, to Solomon or any other king or, he, or earthly king? And the answer to that clearly is no. He doesn't even say it to any of the angels. If he did, by the way, then Satan might have some, something to object about. The Old Testament seems to teach us that Satan tried to exalt himself to sit on the throne equal with God. And as a result, he was condemned and, and thrown out of his position. No, he doesn't invite the angels to come and sit at his right hand and to sit in that place of exaltation. It's only Messiah. This one that David calls my Lord. Messiah here is the only one that Yahweh the Lord exalts to the place of honor at his right hand. But notice something else about this place of exaltation. It is also a place of equality because Messiah is equal with God. He is equal. To sit at the king's right hand means to share in his authority. It means to rule as his co-regent. To rule alongside him. To serve as his equal in authority. So when Yahweh says to another, sit at my right hand, what he's saying is, I'm inviting you to rule alongside me, to share in all my authority. David never claimed such honor for himself. Over and over again, David confessed his own unworthiness that God would even think of him, 
Read Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you visit him? David confessed over and over again his unworthiness. But here in Psalm 110, David is looking ahead at this coming Messiah, this one who'd been promised, the anointed one of God. And what David sees is this Messiah is exalted and equal to God. But notice there's a time element here. There's a time element here. He says, sit at my right hand until. Sit at my right hand until. Well, until what? Well, we'll get to that in a second. But until, the very fact that he uses that that preposition, it means that this position at God's right hand is temporary. Messiah is going to be seated at the Father's right hand, but it is not permanent. It is what we might call anticipatory. In other words, Messiah is invited to sit down beside God's throne at the right hand, but that is only for a period of time. He's not going to stay there permanently. He's waiting for something else to happen. And he says what that is in the rest of this phrase. Until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the rest of verse 1. Now this reveals some very important details to us about Messiah and about his kingdom. First of all, he has enemies. He has enemies. There are people who oppose him. There are people who oppose his right to rule on the earth. But these enemies, however great they are, however powerful they may be, they are no match for the power of God. Because Yahweh says to Messiah here, you sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In ancient times, it was not uncommon for a king, when he had conquered his enemy to actually put his, his foot on the neck of his defeated foe. It was a symbolic gesture. It was essentially saying, your life is in my hands. I dominate you and I have walked all over you. There are even accounts of kings making their beaten opponents kneel down in front of their throne so that they could rest their feet on them, literally making them a footstool. And of course, that's exactly what is in view here. Messiah is invited to sit down at the right hand of God in heaven as he awaits for his kingdom. The the defeat of his enemies. He's waiting for the establishment of his kingdom. What that tells us about this Messiah is that he will be a victorious king who is enthroned above his enemies. He will dominate them. Those who stand against the Lord, those who stand against his anointed one, will not win. This is the promise. They do not get to win. 
They will be defeated. More than defeated, they will be humiliated. He'll use them as a footstool. He will demonstrate his total control and his absolute authority over them. There's a, just to try and come up with an analogy for this, there's a, in the sports world, in the world of baseball, sometimes, and it's really rare, but sometimes a pitcher will be so dominant that his opponents will not even get on base the entire game. He'll pitch nine innings. They won't get a hit. They won't get a walk. He won't hit a batter. None of them will get on base. And what they call that? They call that a perfect game. And it is extremely rare. But it's a dominating effort. I mean, it's just something that only a handful of people can ever do. And that's kind of the picture here. It's total domination. His opponents won't even get on base. It's total control. And David goes on and he gives us more insight into this coming reign of Messiah. Where is it going to take place? Will he rule from heaven? See, the, the Father says, come and sit at my right hand. Is, is the Father inviting him to rule from heaven? And the answer is no. No, actually, what this scripture tells us is that he will rule on the earth. And his capital city is going to be Jerusalem. Look at verse 2. The Lord, there's Yahweh again, shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. The Lord, Yahweh, shall shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Simple question. When God says something, does he mean what he says? Does he say what he means? When he says Zion, does he mean Zion? Yeah. When he says Zion, he doesn't mean anything else. So when he says, you're gonna, your, your, your rod, your scepter is going to go out from Zion, he's saying, this is your capital. You're going to be there, centered in Zion. That's where the rule is going to be. David's expectation, the expectation of the entire Jewish people, was that Messiah would come and rule in Jerusalem. Not a spiritual Jerusalem, but actual Jerusalem. From David's throne. And Psalm 110 simply confirms that expectation is true. It's right for them to expect that. It's right for us to expect that He, this Messiah, will come and He will rule there in Jerusalem. That will be His capital. That's where he will, His authority will be centered. His capital is Jerusalem. This is an earthly kingdom, not a heavenly one. This is a tangible kingdom, not a spiritual one. And there's a spiritual element. We're going to get to that. But there... This kingdom is on earth. And if you were of mind, you could go and look at other scriptures. We're going to come down to some of them here in a minute. I don't want to jump the gun on that. But there's a lot of other references to this in scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, numerous references. Throughout the New Testament, all across scripture, we have evidence given to us over and over again that this is an earthly kingdom that will be centered and focused on the city of Jerusalem. That is where Messiah will rule. 
That is his capital. But notice what else he says there in that same, in that same line that we read in verse 2. The source of his power. Where does it come from? The source of his power is divine. It comes from Yahweh himself. That's what he says. The, the Lord, Yahweh, shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Who is going to send out his scepter? Who is going to extend his rule and his authority? Who does it? It's Yahweh. It's God in heaven. This is divine power. He calls it here the rod of your strength. Other translations translate this, your mighty scepter. It's a, the, the word rod is a, is a broad term that can be used for a shepherd's staff, but it can be used for a king's scepter. And in this context, the king's scepter is what's in view here. He is extending the scepter, and the scepter is a symbol of a king's authority. The king holds that scepter, and that scepter is the the visible, tangible symbol of his authority and his right to reign. So this verse is telling us Messiah is going to wield his mighty scepter in the strength of Yahweh. This mention of the scepter here reminds us of an earlier promise from uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 49, Jacob is blessing his sons as he's preparing to die. And he says to his son Judah, in verse 10 of that chapter, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Judah was to be the royal tribe in Israel. But even they were merely stewards of the scepter, stewards of the authority of God. They were holding it, if you will, in charge for the one who was to come. He's called Shiloh there. That word Shiloh means the one to whom it belongs, the one to whom it comes. They were holding the scepter, but there's one to whom that scepter rightfully belongs. And Psalm 110 tells us this is Messiah. He is going to take this scepter and he is going to to extend this scepter in the power of the Lord. And this scepter represents his complete domination and his right to rule over the earth out of Zion. He is a descendant of David from the tribe of Judah, but he is not a mere man ruling in his own strength. His scepter is empowered by God because the Lord himself will extend his rule from Jerusalem and the Lord himself will make his enemies his footstool. These are the promises of Psalm 110. Now speaking of his enemies... Look at what he says in the last part of the verse. So the first part of the verse, the Lord, Yahweh, sends out his rod uh, out of Zion. But look at the last part. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Some have suggested, some translations kind of go this way. The New King James doesn't here. But uh, some have suggested that this line, rule in the midst of your enemies, is, is actually, again, part of the quotation from Yahweh speaking to Messiah. And I'm inclined to agree. I think that makes the most sense here and fits the best. This is Yahweh telling Messiah to exercise his rule, but where? In the midst of your enemies. As we said, 
He's given a mighty scepter. He is empowered by the Lord himself and he is instructed to exert his authority over those who oppose him. There will be and there are those who oppose the right of God to rule and the right of his Messiah to rule on the earth. And yet the Lord instructs him, extend your scepter, rule over them. There are those who will not recognize the rightful claim of Messiah. They will not submit willingly to Him. But their objections and their opposition will not prevent Him from reigning. This word rule here is a very, very strong term. And it means to dominate against their will. It means to force them to submit. And what we have here in these first two verses is a king who has been placed in authority by God Himself. And He will dominate all who stand in His way. And so very clearly we're told that Messiah will rule over His enemies. He will absolutely and completely dominate them. It won't be a democracy. I know that's a terrible a terrible thing to say here in America. There are a lot of people today who believe that democracy is the superior form of government. And I can understand the arguments they make. And from a human, purely human perspective, I might even agree. But that's not recognizing what the Bible says about God and His rule. You see, God does not seek input from those whom he governs on how best to govern. When Messiah comes to reign, he will not answer to a congress or a parliament. He will freely exercise his power. He will freely exercise his authority from Jerusalem and throughout the whole earth. Those who remain his enemies, those who stand against his authority, they will be dominated by him. He will take that mighty scepter and he will extend that and wield it with divine power to crush his enemies. Listen to what Daniel says. Daniel chapter 7, he had a vision of this event that David is speaking of. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel wrote this down. Behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. That's Yahweh, God the Father. And they brought him near before him. Then to him, that is to the Son, Messiah, is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. There will be enemies. But he will absolutely rule over them. You have no doubt about that. Now, we might get the idea from these first two verses of David's psalm that Messiah's rule will simply be a fierce battle of conquest in which he will crush every foe. And that's not wrong, but it's incomplete. Not everyone will oppose Messiah at his coming. Not everyone will oppose and and, and stand against his right to reign as king on the earth. Notice what he says in verse 3. 
Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. This is a really fascinating verse. It's actually a really difficult verse to deal with in a lot of ways. And commentators are divided about a hundred ways in this verse. Maybe you remember uh, two weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 109, the first part, the first time. Psalm 109, verse 4, David says this, In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Remember that verse? I give myself to prayer, David said. Those words, give myself to, in that verse, are actually not there in the original Hebrew uh, text. We mentioned this. What David was really literally saying, if you were to literally translate it, he says, he says in, in return for my love, they are my accusers, but I, prayer. That's really what David says, literally. But I, prayer. And it's a, it's a specific kind of, of grammar that Hebrew, uh, that Hebrew uses there. It's as if David is identifying himself with prayer. He was saying, I am completely given over to prayer. That's why they, they insert those words. It helps to make it more sensible to us. But David is, is, is equating himself with prayer. The interesting thing here is in this verse, Psalm 110 verse 3, he uses the, the same kind of construction to identify the people who belong to Messiah. Your people. By the way, your people as opposed to your enemies. Okay? So there's the contrast here. But notice what he says. Your people, and even if you look at your, at your, 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 your Bible, it might have those words, shall be, are in italics. That indicates they've been added to smooth out the translation. Your people, volunteers. That would be a literal rendering of this phrase. Your people, willingness. Or actually, another way this could be translated is free will offering. Your people, free will offering. What does that mean? What it's saying is that that on the day when Messiah comes in His power, His people will give themselves as a free will offering to Him. They will equate. Your people are equal to a free will offering. They will be willing. Here is a total contrast. You have the enemies who must be ruled. They must be subjugated because they refuse to submit. But here you have a totally different story. Here you have your people. The people who belong to you. Oh, they aren't resistant at all. In fact, they are a free will offering. Giving themselves willingly and freely to Messiah. They consider themselves free will offerings. By the way, when I read that, I'm reminded, you might know the verses in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul says that we are to give our bodies as a living sacrifice. Same concept. Same idea. Willing to offer ourselves. He says on that day when Messiah comes to reign and rule, He will have His people who will willingly give themselves to Him. I hope you see the distinction, the important distinction, between those who are His enemies. They're unwilling. They're resistant. They're rebellious. And those who are his people, who willingly give themselves to him. You see, they come to be servants to the king. His enemies oppose him. 
His enemies are, have to be forced to kneel before him. But not everyone. Not everyone will be brought low. Not everyone will be humiliated and dominated by the power of God. No, there are those, David says. There are those who will humble themselves. Those who will give themselves. Those who will willingly submit to the Lord and His anointed one, His Messiah. David probably has in view here the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, throughout its entire history in the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, they stubbornly refuse to submit to God. Generation after generation, they just refuse to submit to God. They continuously turned away from God and turned to idols. And then you come to the New Testament and you see the Israelite people, the Jewish people there, and they likewise refuse to recognize Jesus Christ for who he was. And they refuse to, to, to willingly submit to God and his authority. And even to this day, the nation of Israel, the, the, the Jewish people as a whole, refuse to submit to and, and, and refuse to receive the Messiah. But there's coming a day. There's coming a day, and I think David was speaking of this coming day. A day when the nation of Israel will turn to Messiah in repentance and in humble faith. As I said, I think the prophets expound upon this. Zechariah speaks of this in Zechariah chapter 12. I wish we had time to look at that. Speaks about the day when Israel turns to the Lord. He says, they'll look on me who they pierced and they will mourn. Of course, we talked about this last week, about how Moses pleaded with the Israelites to circumcise their hearts. Jeremiah pleaded with a later generation, centuries later, of Israelites to do the same thing because their fathers had failed to do it. Stephen in the New Testament rebuked the Jews because they were also uncircumcised of heart. That meant stubborn and resistant to God. And remember, that's the quality of the enemies of Messiah, that they are resistant and must be ruled and dominated. And Stephen rebuked them and said, the problem is you're just like your fathers. You're stubborn and hard-hearted when you ought to willingly submit to the Lord. But as I mentioned last week, Moses promised a day, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, when Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Moses, all the way back in the, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, was promising a coming day when Israel would turn to the Lord willingly. And David here is referring to that as well. Anticipating the day when Messiah comes and his people, those who belong to him, willingly submit to his authority. They come freely and gladly to serve him. But notice, this is also important. One more thing here we need to see from this verse. That, that, that those who come to serve him, those who, are, who, who, who would make up his army, if you will, on the day of his conquest, 
They must be more than willing. They must also be holy. Messiah's people will be holy. David speaks of that here. He describes them this way. He says that they will come in the beauties of holiness. That word beauties of holiness, that expression really means to be arrayed in holiness. To be robed in holiness. It's used of God elsewhere in the Bible. But here I believe he's using it of these who would come and give themselves to him. These people who belong to him. They are to be arrayed in holiness. David here speaks of them and he uses some really interesting terminology arising from the womb of the morning as the the dew of your youth. It seems to speak of them almost as, as the dew upon the ground in the morning when the sun rises in the sky and there covering the whole earth, David sees young men who are robed in holiness and ready to serve the king. This is the vision that David sees as he's looking into the future and seeing this this Messiah as the Lord is is revealing this truth to him that there is coming a day when this one, this victorious king, this Messiah whom David calls my Lord, there's coming a day when he will come to earth to reign. Oh, he's seated right now at the, the right hand of the throne of God. In fact, the New Testament makes that very clear. That's where he is right now. But David says that's only temporary. He's waiting until the day when his enemies will be subjugated. So we might even ask, well, why not now? Well, that's what David is saying. Why doesn't he come now and make it all right? Why doesn't he come now and deal justice? Why doesn't he come now and make sure everybody gets what's coming to them? Well, the reason is he's waiting. He's waiting for Yahweh. He's waiting for God the Father to make his enemies his footstool, as he promised. This is part of God's timeline. We must not buy into the thinking of the world that says that since he hasn't come yet to reign, that means he's not coming at all and we're all on our own. No. He is coming. This is why David in Psalm 109 is able to commit himself to prayer. Because he knows the Lord is coming. And Psalm 110 then gives us the reassurance of that as David proclaims this prophetic word from God. There is a divine plan being worked out in history. God is seated on his throne in heaven and he has invited his son to sit beside him at his right hand. But this is the temporary arrangement. Awaiting the day when the Lord himself will put down every enemy. When he will send out his scepter that Christ may rule on the earth. And so you can trust yourself to him today. He is not idle. He's not gone away on vacation and forgotten all about his responsibilities. He's merely awaiting the appointed day when he will take up his kingdom. That kingdom which is given to him by the Father. We don't know what day that will be, but we know that each day that passes it grows closer. And so the question that I want to ask you and challenge you to think about and examine your own self today is this. Are you among those who give themselves freely to serve Him? Who willingly come and submit to Him as your Lord and your Master? Who offer yourself as a free will offering to the Lord? 
Have you given yourself and your life to Christ? Put your hope and your trust in Him. If not, then then Psalm 110 suggests very clearly or, or states very clearly that you are right now among those that David calls the enemies of the Lord and His anointed one. You are among the enemies destined to be forced into submission. And you may think that you're in control. You may think that you have the say of what to do in your life. You may think that you can direct your life and plan your life, but the truth is you are not. He is God. He is the true and rightful king. And you will submit to him. You'll either do so willingly now or you will do so unwillingly by force on the day when he comes and claims his right as king. Today you have the choice. Humble yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess Him as your Lord, as your Master, your Adonai, as David did, and be counted among His people. Or refuse and be counted among His enemies to be made His footstool. Choose wisely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, realize that Scripture teaches us these truths about Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the rightful King and ruler of this earth. We dismiss this truth to our own peril. And yet we realize there are billions of people on the, on the world today who have rejected and continue to reject this truth. Who believe that they can live a self-determined life. That the outcome of things is completely in their hands. That whatever happens and whatever's done, they're going to have to do it because no one else is in control and no one is in charge. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to realize the folly of that kind of thinking. Help us to see what, what David so clearly saw in Psalm 110, that Christ is the rightful king. And we will either submit to him willingly or we will submit to his power by force on the day that he comes. Pray, Lord, you'd help us to be willing today to bow our knee to Christ. To acknowledge him as our rightful Lord and Master. And to serve him with all that we have. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.